Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Let's agree up front. Canada, and I say this both as a state and as a collectivity of people, has a very hard time remembering its history, and for a lot of people, that's just fine. Some studies have shown that Canadians, as individuals, value the history of their families and of their communities, but when it comes to politicians, that desire does not find much of an echo. In every act of commemoration, the state of this country contributes next to nothing. History for them is a danger zone, and I have to ask... How did it come to this? How is it that Canada is such an amnesiac? To talk about this topic, my guest in this podcast is Tim Cook, the author of The Fight for History, which has just been published by Alan Lane. Tim Cook is a historian at the Canadian War Museum and the author of many award-winning books. In 2013, he received the Pierre Burton Award for popularizing Canadian history. In this latest book, and this is his 12th, He takes on the politics of memory, particularly as it applies to the Second World War. We reached out to him at his office in the Canadian War Museum in Ottawa. Tim Cook, welcome to the mic. Thank you so much. You're the witness to history on this podcast. Tell me what happened to a particular group of 156 Canadian soldiers in June 1944 when they fell into the hands of the German Nazis. Well, this was the, they were members of the 3rd Canadian Division, which was involved uh, on the, in the D-Day landings on the 6th of June, 1944, and, and hitting Juneau Beach. And of course, many of your listeners will know that story, the fight off the beach, the incredible uh, courage and bravery and, and sacrifice, and, and, the, and the grim fighting that continued beyond that. And on that second and third day of that campaign, the 7th of June, the 8th of June, the Canadians ran into the German counterattacking forces, and they had their own battle with the 12th SS uh, Panzer Division. And this was a division that was formed of Hitler youth, uh, young, indoctrinated uh, murderous. They had a reputation for not taking prisoners. And in the seesaw battles on the 7th and 8th and the 9th, they uh, fought against the Canadians back and forth over those farmers' fields in 1944. Um, There was tremendous uh, loss of life uh, in the savage fighting, and dozens upon dozens of Canadians were captured um, as their positions were overrun, as they tried to hold off the German onslaught. And those 156 Canadians that you refer to, um, we know were executed, executed by the Nazi youth, executed for the most part after they were captured, after they were uh, bound, after they were interrogated. And they form an important part of my book in the in the fight for history, um, because I think today uh, many people do not remember that story, and it's just one of many stories from the Second World War that that I had encountered in the past in my research and my writing, and and it really led me to that question of why we don't know more about Canada's role in the Second World War. I have to say, Tim, I. It's the first time I hear about it, and uh, I'm really grateful. Uh, this is uh, an extraordinary tale. What happens essentially is that the guy who executed these 156 Canadians got away with it, didn't he? He did. It's General Kurt Meyer. He was uh, he was a brigadier at the time. He later took over the division when the divisional commander was killed. He oversaw these these executions, and we we know that from eyewitness accounts. 
um, he was captured by the Allies in September. The 12th SS as a fighting force was basically annihilated in the fighting in Normandy. But the Canadians made it their mission to try him for uh, a war crime, uh, our first. And that occurred in December of 1945. So after the war was over, the war in Europe, the war in Japan, as uh, hundreds of thousands of Canadians were going home, this trial um, took place. And it was, you know, it's one of the most sensational trials in Canadian history. It was being followed by every one in Canada. There were all the major newspapers were there. And he was uh, charged uh, with the murder. Um, and then in a uh, bizarre twist, um, uh, a senior Canadian general decided to commute his sentence. And he was then um, imprisoned in New Brunswick. And this was to great outrage of Canadians who felt quite rightly, I think, that the Canadian soldiers executed had been abandoned um, by the, uh, the senior commander. And I suppose by the Canadian government, and I and I talk about Kurt Meyer in the book, because he was imprisoned for about six years, and then West Germany, as it was rebuilding, as it was coming to grips with its difficult history in the war, while strangely it was being incorporated back into NATO, they demanded that their war criminals be sent home, including Kurt Meyer, and he was sent home in 19, uh, sent to Germany in 1951 again to tremendous outrage, and then finally freed in 1954. And and he's an interesting character of which to look at the post-war memory, as the book does, and to think about the factors that affect memory, that have an impact on aspects of commemoration. And, and really the question is, how could we have let this war criminal go just six years after the end of the war? And uh, 10 years beyond that, one of his jobs, including being a spokesperson for uh, veteran SS veterans, so hardcore Nazis, was to sell beer back to Canadian mm. forces in Germany. Quite remarkable. It I have to say, I was shocked by this story, and I can just imagine being in the in the boots of a former soldier or uh, a relative who's lost somebody. To see the government of Canada act this way, it it seemed to show that the sacrifice meant nothing to these people. It was interpreted as though, okay, this happened, let's forget about it. Um. I found myself very angry in reading in reading this book. Um, there was, but this was not the only tale. There was a, a great deal of inertia, of of hesitation, also when it came to building a monument to these veterans. We had a phenomenal, beloved mon- monument uh, to the, the 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 fighters and and the victims of the First World War. What happened? How come we weren't able to build a monument to the, for the for the soldiers and the victims, the, the casualties of the Second World War. Yeah, the I liked in your intro where you said history is seen by many as a danger zone, especially um, uh, the government. It, it tends to prefer heritage, a much more safe version of the past, often celebratory. But that's odd, isn't it? The Second World War was a victory. Um, you know, I, what I could not understand as I was researching this book, and as you mentioned, it's my 11th, so it's not my first time engaging with Canada and the two world wars, was really the dominant um, memory of the First World War. If we think of Remembrance Day and the poppy and the thousands of memorials across the country and the National Memorial um, and Vimy overseas and Beaumont Hamel mm-hmm. and the weight of those uh, Canadians who died in Flanders Fields, the 66,000 dead. 
why didn't we talk about the Second World War in the same way? That was really a core question I have, as you know, as historians, as we want to answer something. And that was one of them, is why didn't we talk about the Second World War in the same way? And one of the, um, one of the answers to that is to come back to your question of building memorials. What was to be done in 1945? There was a great debate across Canadian society. Should we build 4,000 more local memorials? Mm-hmm. Um, should we build new national memorials, new overseas memorials? Well, uh, that's not what Canadians decided to do. Um, Canadians wanted functional memorials. These were memorials that were libraries and gardens and parks and hockey arenas. And I understand that. They were, they were meant to celebrate the life of those young men and occasionally young women who had died, places of, of living, of, of moving forward. And yet, what happened, of course, is that they were not sacred places. They were not places to gather and to bear witness. Mm. And so what happened without these memorials, and often the names of the fallen were added to First World War memorials, and I talk about in the book a fascinating story about, as you mentioned, the National Memorial in Ottawa, unveiled in 1939, and the Mackenzie King government of the day is, is bewildered when veterans of the Second World War say, we need our own memorial. Yes. Uh, we, we accept the poppy, we accept Remembrance Day, but we want our own memorial. I mean, 45,000 people died, and, and I'm not counting all the casualties. This is serious loss. It is, and it's, it's shocking that it was turned down uh, by the government. And then a second time, as I recount later in the book, yes. in the late 1950s and early 1960s, and I think the absence of that memorial, interestingly, adds to... Um, the strange memory that emerges of the Second World War, which I guess is really at the mm-hmm. core of the book. Um, when I was an undergraduate at Trent University in the early 1990s, and I really had my first serious engagement with Canadian history, I remember learning about the Second World War, largely about defeat and disgrace, yes. largely about Dieppe and the uh, forced relocation of Japanese Canadians, about infringements on civil liberties. Of course, that's a part of the war, but it's not the only part. So we had 1.1 million Canadians who served. We fought around the world. We contributed massive amounts of munitions and food, and the list goes on and on. And we beat a terrible enemy. That's right. I I called this, as I did in a previous book, the necessary war. Mm-hmm. It's often been called the good war by uh, you know the, the United States in the United States. I've always been uncomfortable with that. War is horrible. The cost of war is, is unbelievable. This is a war that saw direct attacks on civilians and genocide and the Holocaust. But if ever there was a necessary war, this, this was, was it. it. Yeah, this was it. And how how it slipped from memory for decades, I think, um, was not an easy story to unravel. And, and in part, in part, Tim, is it is it a question of Canadians having difficulty in telling their own story? You talk about, you write about Charles Stacy, for example, the official war historian. Uh, he was in the employ of the Canadian government, um, whose first descriptions of the military's prowess in the Second World War was a little jaundiced. Uh, Charles Stacy seemed to have the impression or argued that the Canadian army really wasn't all that great, that the Nazis uh, had tremendous uh, battle capacity and that if Canada succeeded, it was because it rode the coattails of other armies. Is, are we guilty? I mean, are, is, did we shoot ourselves in the foot from the get-go? 
I think um, we've never done a great job in telling our story. It's something about the Canadian character. I suppose it's, it's uh, what happens when you move from empire to empire, uh, that we had British heroes and then we, um, we have stumbled our way forward creating our own Canadian stories. And some of that is, is just our uh, Canadian character. Some of it is our inability, I think, to edge out the Americans who are very good at telling their story and perhaps crowing too much and certainly about World War II. Uh, and that's another theme in the book of, of how, why and how we miss the opportunity here. In fact, uh, Colonel Stacy, uh, I do think, did a, was a fine historian, and he would, he would become Canada's most important military historian, and in fact, a diplomatic historian as well, and a historian of external affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a difficult job to write the official history, the first foundational histories, and he did this uh, without access to all the records, while all the commanders were alive. And in fact, my doctoral dissertation, called Cleo's Warriors, went into more detail on the writing of Canadian history. Um, but he was struggling to understand how the Germans had held on for so long. And he concluded in the end that the Canadians, like the British and the Americans, although people have focused on the Canadians, were not aggressive enough. And that's a, that's a story that goes, a um, theme that runs through this history of how we talked about our forces and how we assessed them. But it's, so Stacy, I'm more sympathetic to actually um, than you've described there. But I think it's a larger question. Um, think of church the great war leader. Yes. Think of our Mackenzie King, mm-hmm. uh, who I've written about in a biography as well. But uh, Mackenzie King was not a, a, a heroic leader, um, although he was a safe one and perhaps an important one. But Churchill, of course, wrote book after book, and his story mm-hmm. was known to the world. And Mackenzie King kept his important diaries, but he was, of course, um, never able to rise to that occasion. And, and our yet, generals. Yeah. And yet Churchill was defeated and Mackenzie King was reelected. Was, that's right. <laughs> you know, Mackenzie King, I'm sure you've, you, will, uh, you would love to talk about him in your podcast because people love to talk about him. He's sure. such a mystery. Yes. And he was a mystery as a war leader as well. Um, but it, it extends to our Canadian generals and admirals and, um, and air marshals who didn't write about the war. And the Canadian soldiers themselves, when they came back, they generally didn't write mm. about the war. So there was an absence there when combined with the CBC and the NFB really ignoring this story. Well, let's talk about that in a second. I mean, because that's, that's an important you, – you make the point in your book that we have basically we, – we have so written ourselves out of our own history that we've left the Americans and the British – write our history in the Second World War. And they've had an enormous influence in crafting our own reputation and the reputation of our own efforts. What leads you to think this way? I think there weren't a lot of military historians in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And by the 1980s, the the changes in universities and the embracing of of, uh, different types of history, social history in a broad sense, Mm -hmm. um, military history largely had fallen out of favor at that point. Um, But in those decades, there really wasn't a lot written other than the official uh, historians. And and as as you've said, we left it to the Americans and the British to tell their stories and the Germans and Japanese and others. And Canada either wrote itself out of its own history or simply did not speak up. And so the British and the Americans paid almost no attention to Canada's contribution. And that shows that shows in, in movies. 
I think it does. We can look at these movies. And I'm, as I was writing the book, I, you know, there were parts where I was angry as well, thinking, why didn't we do more? And I understand that it was, it's never easy to make films in Canada. We, we're not going to have a Saving Private Ryan or a Band of Brothers. And yet, it doesn't appear that we've tried very hard even to have uh, you know, multi-documentaries um, or uh, you know, various forms of cultural uh, productions or engagement. It, it just hasn't been there for well, the you, second You talk World about War. The Longest Day, uh, the famous movie of the early 1960s. So the Second World War is still very much fresh in the minds of people. Uh, what's the Canadian presence in The Longest Day? Because <laughs> you remember the film from 1962. Everyone's seen it and re-seen it. And it was great excitement when this film was coming out because it was a major production. About the invasion. Yes, about the invasion. Yeah, the invasion. Of course, Canada uh, standing shoulder to shoulder with Britain and the United States and landing at Juneau Beach. And Canadians were excited to see this. And veterans were coming out and they were marching in the streets. And they went to see this film, and Canada is almost absent. It's, it was shocking. And I was reading the reviews of the day, and everyone's saying, this is a, an incredible film. It's so moving and powerful, but where is Canada? And it's a long movie. They could have split, you know, they could have, they could have, they could have inserted something in there. Yeah, and, and as I've traveled the country and I speak to people, um, and people ask about my books and this, and this is a story I hear often. You know, why haven't we told these stories? I, I didn't know about this, people say. I, they, you know, I, I didn't know about Canada's role in the bow of the Atlantic, uh, half of the convoys being escorted by the Royal Canadian Navy. Yes. I didn't know the importance of the bow of the shelter. I'd even heard about it. <laughs> um, I had no idea that Canadians were involved in the Great Escape. I saw the movie. I haven't, I mean, and of course, uh, Jonathan, um, Jonathan Vance has written about it. Yes, but the, Canadi- yes. the Great Escape... Yeah. It's about Canada. <laughs> it is. And and we are written out of that. All of the Canadian characters become Americans or British. Do you think the NFB and the CBC Radio-Canada should have done more? Where were they? They were MIA in all this. They were. Um, and I really, um, and I address that in the book and I talk about it with the caveat that I understand it, it was not easy to make Canadian uh, productions in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. There's one major uh, documentary, Canada at War, um, from the NFB and I think 1962. Um, it's an important contribution, but all of the reviews around that say, this is great. Finally, we get Canada's story. I've but never isn't heard of it too late? I've never right? heard of this. Yeah. Well, they aired it. They aired it even bizarrely at something like 10:30 at night, um, while the American D-Day series was was aired in prime time. And so, you know, that's an example of us shooting ourselves in the foot, I guess. Uh, and of course, uh, the the great production, the NFB CBC production, is The Valor and the Horror, which comes out in 1992. After decades of neglect, after mm-hmm. years of veterans saying, we finally need a history. And when that three-part series came out, an award-winning series seen by millions of Canadians, veterans were outraged because it focused on that narrative of defeat and disgrace. And, um, and that's really the low point in this arc of, of um, the, the memory of the war. And then just a couple years later, when many veterans thought that they would, they would go to their graves without anyone acknowledging their service, decades later, the 50th anniversary occurred. And these anniversaries, as we know, matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that I see as the upswing. 1994. 
1994 and 1995, thousands of Canadian veterans returning to France, to Belgium, to the to the Netherlands, being greeted as the liberators that they were. And I think Canadians woke up and said, who are these people? Um, uh, as I talk about in the book, there's many other reasons for this. Canada changed as a modern country, I think, in the 60s and 70s. In terms of uh, martial symbol, the rise of the peacekeeper was important. But really, there had been a, a lot of neglect uh, up until the mid-1990s. The You mentioned that CBC, NFB-CBC series from the early 1960s. That no longer exists, does it? It was. Uh, I don't. I haven't seen it, and I don't know if it's available. Um, that's a. That's a great question. I think um, it was rebroadcast in 1995 and 96, partially um, in uh, in response to the valor and the horror that so outraged um, veterans. But I, I do think, um, you know, CBC has, has had its hand in the last two decades at presenting history on film. And while professional historians have criticized them for leaving out this or that, um, it's generally been very successful. And it has struck me that now would have been a time for an eight-part or ten-part series to look at the complexities of the war. And here, you know, I'm not asking for heroic history here. I'm not suggesting that we need only to elevate everyone to... Uh, um, to being heroes. There are dark strains of, of memory and action that occurred during the war. Um, but for goodness sake, let's talk about it. Let's present it. Let's allow people to understand their own history. And that as a public historian is something that I, I believe quite fervently in um, and have uh, been trying to do this now for, I suppose, the better part of 20 years. And surely the example of what other public broadcasters do in terms of innovative ways of presenting the many, many, many dimensions of history. I'm thinking of the extraordinary work of the BBC, of PBS, of uh, France 2, France 3 in, in France, the German public um, television system. They produce documentaries on the history of their nations in all sorts of clever, interesting, entertaining ways. And our national broadcaster, again, adamantly refuses to do anything of, 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 of either a serious nature or of a less serious nature. I want to come back to your role as a public historian. You are a PhD. You've studied uh, in depth. What do you mean? How do you interpret your role as a quote-unquote public historian? Well, I guess at the basic level, I work for a public institution, the Canadian War Museum, which, where the role here is to to present the story of Canada's military history, its impact on Canada and on Canadians. Um, if I am to take a step back and think of my own role as public historian, as you've mentioned, I'm, I have an academic history background. I have a PhD in, in history. I've, I've written a number of academic UBC or University Press published books. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when I was building the War Museum, involved in that, I was the historian of the First World War Gallery, so one of our five permanent galleries. I, I, it was an amazing opportunity. We did that from 2002 to 2005 when the museum opened in May of 2005. And that really opened my eyes to the, the power of history. Um, we have about half a million people come through the museum a year. This is where people get their history, mm-hmm. in addition to those television programs you, you've discussed. And 
um, we know there's a crisis in in the academy right now in in history. At least I hear about it, and enrollments are down. But people still seem to want their history. They they come to museums in great numbers. They see historical films. They listen to podcasts. Uh, they read historical novels. And so I, we know that people want it, and those of us who've devoted our, our adult lives to it, I guess, we're trying to find ways to reach them. And as as we finished the museum at the time, I remember thinking, is there a way I could take this knowledge that I have um, gained from reading all of the historiography and, and archival research and share it with Canadians? And from that point forward, I began to write history books that were more accessible. I, I looked at other successful writers and, and, and studied their craft and how they wrote. My books are, I think, no less grounded in the archival research. My big books, my two-volume history of the First World War, my two-volume history of the Second World War, I think they have a thousand footnotes, most of them archival. And, and, yet and your, there approach, is an, your approach is critical, Tim Cook. Your approach is still critical. There's a narrative there. There's a strong narrative. I think if people read my work, um, there's a there's a uh, analysis and there's a critical analysis as well. But you have to tell a story if you want to reach beyond the academy. And and so that's uh, that in my own personal life of being an academic, um, um, being a public historian, writing for others, and I suppose to some degree being a popular historian with with book sales and awards. I have. I see myself as a bit of a hybrid in some sense, mm-hmm. although not, I think, one that um, that falls out of any of the camps, because, in fact, I, I still contribute to academic journals and, and, and happy to talk on TV or a podcast. But I think the, the underlying message there is to, to get the story out, to tell our story, to share um, our history, not uncritically. We have to be critical of it. And yet um, we need to find ways to reach um, wider audiences and to reach the Canadian Canadians who I think generally want their history. And to tell, to tell more of the story. We, we, are, we are starved for story, to tell more of the story. Yeah, that's that's a part of it from mm-hmm. from this book, the fight for history. That I, I came to realize, if if you don't build the memorials, if you don't write the books, if you don't produce the films, uh, and the list goes on, well, we shouldn't be surprised that people don't know as mm-hmm. much as we would like them to. We certainly can't expect the Americans or the French or the Germans or the British to tell our story. Right. That that would just be absurd, right? So it it is incumbent upon us, both our I think our um, national broadcasters, our, um, our academics. Uh, it extends to teachers in high schools. It extends to the genealogists and those engaged in family history and curators and archivists. There's a large group, uh, and nonetheless, um, I, I feel, in talking to other colleagues, that um, this is a struggle that, uh, that we, we need to keep at, and that is, I guess, that is the title, you The have- Fight. You, in a couple of instances, you talk about where members of civil society, non-governmental actors, have taken things into their own hands and driven the agenda. Um, you talk about the rebirth of the Canadian War Museum, for example. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Instances where former veter- for- veterans, former soldiers, took things in their hands and and rebelled against this attitude of neglect? Well, one of the... 
one of the questions I had in the book was, why, why didn't we have an overseas memorial? I had written a book on Vimy in 2017, The Battle and the Legend, and in that book I tried to, to look both at the battle but unpack it over time. Why did we still talk about Vimy? Why mm-hmm. is it on the $20 bill? Why is it in our passports? Why do we care? Yeah. Why do some people say it's the birth of the nation? Well, people don't say that about Dieppe or Juno or D-Day. Partially because, as I talked about in the Vimy book, the memorial is so powerful and it anchors that story, that legend, the battle and the ridge and the memorial and the idea all together. And I wondered why wasn't there something like that for the Second World War? And in this book, I uncovered the stories where the Legion was saying, why don't we have a memorial mm-hmm. at D-Day, uh, at Juno Beach? Why wouldn't the government do that? And for generations, the government didn't want to. They weren't in Involved in this, and it took veterans after um, the 50th anniversary to come together to raise the money to build the Juno Beach Center, and that is there today. It opened in 2003, and that's an anchor, uh, a site of memory, as academics might say, um, in Normandy, where there are over a million visitors a year to those um, battlefields. That is an important anchor there to tell our story. And uh, shortly after that, in 2005, as we talked about before, the War Museum opened, and yeah. that too, that wasn't um, that wasn't led by private individuals, although they contributed uh, to the fundraising campaign. The, the Canadian War Museum is a, a crown corporation, but it too plays a role, I think, in stimulating um, th- the memory of our wars, of our conflicts, of the impact of them, the the good and the bad, um, uh, the stories of. of heroism and and of of sorrow um and that's a, that too is a part of i think the surge that we've seen and the book ends uh really in these you know in the last, in the 21st century where i argue at least that we have begun to pay more attention to our history well, it's about time you, you, you say you say in the book that uh the second world war is is remembered for three things dieppe which was a disastrous uh, military mission where a lot of Cana- many many Canadians were sacrificed, so to say, uh, on the beaches of Dieppe as a failed attempt to uh, to take the continent to, to at least achieve a, a landing on the continent. The conscription crisis, which divided the nation again, and of course the Japanese internment. Uh, what should the Canadian war effort be remembered for? Well, those three things are important, but I would argue that, of course, there's much more to it. The the 1.1 million in uniform fighting around the world, um, fighting on the oceans, the, the critical role in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, the, the Italian campaign where 100,000 Canadians served and played a key role, 10,000 Canadians who were in the Far East, in Hong Kong and in Burma, um, the invasion, the air war, it goes on and on. It isn't to say we need A, B, and C, and D, and F better be there too. It is to have, I think, a, a richer understanding of the complexity of this war both overseas and at home. It's a war that left a powerful legacy of a a larger state, the the birth of the welfare system. Um, Think of the baby bonus and all of the social security net, the massive uh, industrialization and urbanization that occurred during the war, Um, the uh, embracing of a North American idea of being linked financially to the 
United States and yeah. economically, sorry. Um, and, and the re-engagement and, with the United Nations. That's right. And, and stepping out on the world stage. All of this is a part of the war effort. And deserves to be remembered. It, it really does. And I think, um, I think we have moved away from the strange um, narrative that had been crafted over decades into something fuller and richer now. Ironically, and perhaps sadly, it has occurred while we are down to our final veterans. There's about 30,000 Second World War veterans left alive. And I wonder um, what this year will hold. 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. We saw in 2018 and 2017 with the 100th anniversary, the end of the First World War and the Vimy before that in 2017, uh, public commemoration, government uh, involvement, but also of citizens across the country and around the world. I hope that we talk about the war in all of its complexity. Is it too late, Tim, for a Second World War memorial? I mean, should it be done? The Americans, uh, I'll remind you, I don't need to remind you, but the Americans inaugurated their World War II memorial on the National Mall in Washington only 15 years ago. Uh, they still don't have a First World War museum, uh, monument, but they have a, a really important Second World War. Is it too late for Canada to get its act together and, and do something in Ottawa? I don't know if it's too late. We're, we seem to be in a, a memorial building period, don't we? We mm. built the Holocaust Memorial here in Ottawa. There is um, plans for the, I think it's called the Victims of Communism Memorial. Um, memorial building now is a challenge, without a doubt. It always has been. Whose history is told? Whose voice is uh, privileged? Um, you'll remember there was an attempt to build a new First World War Memorial in Cape Breton. Um, in 2015-2016 mm-hmm. that that was tied up with politics as well. Right. Um, we shouldn't be surprised about that. It is always the case. Is it too late? No, it's not. Yeah. Um, would it be a fitting memorial as this generation uh, passes on and as their children uh, come of age of, of, of passing on as well for, for future generations? Uh, I think it would be within... Um, it would it would not be the wrong thing to do if we are thinking about how we should mark and how we should talk about um, the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Well, it's an optimistic note on which to end. Tim Cook, thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. Thank you. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place for you to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on February 11th, 2020, and it was produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.